Hi everyone, welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Hey everyone, on today's podcast, we have David Helgeson, the founder of Unity. Now, this is a very fun podcast for me because I've, I've been big fans of the Helgeson family for a long time now, good friends with, with his brothers. Ari and Ingvar, investor in Ingvar's company, actually, Vitro Labs. And, you know, one of the fascinating stories about, um, uh, you know, the, the team, the team Helgeson is how successful they've been each in their own unique way. And David's story is fascinating to me because he's transformed a whole industry around runtime environments and having a, a place where people can author really compelling, not only tools, but also games. And so with that, welcome, David. Thanks. Thanks. And I, you know, I just always feel I need to insert. We were actually three founders, and and now it's a big team effort. But yes, we you know we, we've done we've done really interesting work at Unity, that's for sure. Well, we always like to go to to the background of people first before we go mm -hmm. into sort of like where where they were, kind of their name okay. got chiseled. And so in in your case, it's a little bit about your university and a little bit about your first few jobs. And well, I do think we have I was to talk about the university. Was, well, we we do we do stories, we don't. you know. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do, and we don't. I actually, what's really funny, and I was sharing this with you earlier. It's like if if you guys are on this and you go to David's uh, LinkedIn profile, it is one of the best uh, LinkedIn profiles I have ever read because he he narrates his 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 sort of experience with that specific role, and and maybe I'll just leave it open ended for you, David, to to sort of share with us that sort of the early journey, like everything from the challenges that you might have felt during university, and then also those first few roles in, in programming, what, what was that like? Oh man, yeah, so, you know, I'm Icelandic kid that uh, moved to Denmark. Uh, our mother moved to Denmark when I, when, when I was 10 and my brother's younger. Um, you know, she was a journalist, she's a journalist. Well, she was actually writing her doctoral thesis back then. And she got a computer and, and so basically in every moment she was not using the computer, I was using her computer. And it was this weird early PC, like we, I didn't have a have a Commodore like everyone else or Atari, so so I you know, had this weird PC and there was no games on it. So I just somebody gave me a basic interpreter and told me like, you know, that I could make my own games. Um, you know, born seventy seven, I think that whole generation of programmers, basically, you know, we all learned to program to make games, right? Uh, so I also did that. I, I I didn't actually become a game developer, arguably ever. Um, but but definitely not that back then. So now it's just this kind of kid who was spending all the time programming and fooling around with the computer. Um, what was yeah. your favorite game during that time? I didn't have any. <laughs> no, I mean, um, what games did I mean? I, you know, I played games on friends' computers. Um, Defender was the first video game I played. Mm -hmm. um, still remember the. Jarring audio of that. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Um, I don't know. I, I I didn't play that many. I mean, I played a bunch of games. Um, it was the submarine games, winter games. Like I don't know this all this weird stuff. So, um, yeah, so you had all this all this sort of <laughs> drive to like improve that gaming experience, and then you decided no, to start. No, I was, I was just I was just learning. I I wasn't actually trying to fix anything. I was just like I was I was just super infatuated with computers there's just something in there that i i just had to spend all my waking hours every waking hour there um i did have well that and and, and studying and reading about uh, like physics and, and other science stuff 
And so, you know, it sounds like there was a, a very, a very quick transition from like doing some programming work for other companies to starting your own company with, with Pan Media. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that transition from like doing work for other people to yeah, yeah. deciding you want to start your own thing? Sure. So, you know, I, I, when I finished high school, uh, I, uh, I was going to take a guy, I was always, always going to be a, like a, a scientist. So I was going to study physics or, or psychology and I ended up studying a bit of both, but, but I, I you know, but I was going to take a gap year, like all my friends. Um, so I just, uh, instead of, um, cleaning, you know, cleaning, cleaning, cleaning apartments or, or, or doing stuff like that, working cafes or, or traveling uh, through Latin America, which I sort of regretted didn't do still haven't. Uh, my, um, I, I, I got a kind of a summer, no, like, I don't know, like a little gig at a web agency in 96, which, you know, if, well, it was just a hot, hot, hot era for, for web, you know, everyone who could write a little bit of HTML basically had a job. Um, so I, I got that gig and, and that sort of became like a multi-year kind of, you know, making websites for people and working for ad agencies and there was nothing super glorious about it. I didn't respect mm. it at all. I was just always kind of heading back to university mm. and I, I did go back from time to time. Um, but then I, I, got, I got really fed up with it. Um, but I was so lucky that I got like a little, like uh, just a contract job with a sort of a software agency. And they were also just doing contract work, but they had like real craftsmanship and kind of gave me a respect and I learned a whole, whole lot from them. Um, and I, at the end of that project, which was just a few months, I was like, I want to be, I want to be like, I want to be that, like, you now I can have my own company. And I never thought of that before. Um, and I, you know, in my own company, I can have my own music on the stereo. It's just, it's gotta be my thing, you know? And then I started a few companies that really didn't go anywhere, <laughs> but at least, you know, tried. So maybe walk us through those two companies. Like, how, how big did they get in terms of team? Oh, at, at, oh super small. I mean, this is nullities, basically. So, um, so Pan Media was just a consulting company. We did some work for Nokia and stuff, but uh, it wasn't very exciting. I learned a bunch working at Nokia as a coder, but you know, like the company didn't give me much. Yeah. Um, this is a, a good, a good, a good era for Nokia. They they had a real kind of respect for you know, engineers and for, 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 for the craft of, of building stuff. Um, the, 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 other, the other thing I think uh, you, you noticed was, uh, was this eye cover, which was yeah. uh, not my idea, but, but I, I, I in, in effect, I, be, I guess I was like a kind of a CTO of the project. Um, and the idea by some musicians was to kind of create interactive content to go along with, 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 um, with CDs, so you buy a music CD, which was still a thing for a moment back then. Uh, and then if you, if you bought the CD, you would have kind of a login to a website of some sort and you would have some access to backstage, contact with uh, artists, stuff like that. Uh, we made like one one of those for like a sort of Danish, famous Danish artist. Um, and, uh, and, and therefore probably had like, Ten, fifteen thousand dollars, euro, whatever of of revenue, <laughs> and it did come out. But that was the one thing; uh, it was a complete dud. Nobody cared. Nobody logged in. Um, it wasn't very good. It wasn't very well done either. But like the problem was like more fundamental in nature than whether it was well done or not. Um, and uh, yeah, as, as, as I pointed out somewhere, that you know, Apple tried Apple tried this later with iTunes LP, and they also sort of kind of failed. So I don't feel so bad. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. definitely. So if, if we look at the timeline, just so that I get it right, mm -hmm. um, was there a period between when you 
you kind of gave up on iCover before you started Unity? Was there like a hiatus there? Or was it, did you transition yeah, quickly? I, I was just going back and forth between university and projects. I was always doing some projects, I, you know, okay. a whole bunch of little programming projects and try to kind of thinking about commercializing some of them. Nothing really happened much. Right. Um, uh, then at some point I was really fed up with, with this project work at Penn Media uh, and an old friend from high school um, uh, wanted to make video games and we talked about that. We, we talked about doing it together, but I was kind of still stuck doing project work. Um, so instead he found, or sort of in the meantime, he found a German guy online that, and they started collaborating on this video game project. Um, and then when I finally freed up from my project work, I joined them um, as uh, what sort of became the third founder in a project game company that then sort of evolved into Unity, which, uh, you know, basically we took, we took the internal engine we were working on and we decided to commercialize that and fell so in love gonna, with the idea of, of that. We're going we're gonna to jump into the story of Unity in a, in a second, mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to first just put it round out some of the experience that you picked up from Pan Media and iCover and, and just to help <laughs> you organize that, you know, usually people look back and they, and they think, okay, the mistakes that I made were uh, product mistakes or they were customer identification mistakes or market sizing mistakes mm. or sales mistakes or human resources mistakes. If, if you look mm. back on them with a little bit of sort of like, you know, empathy towards a younger David, but if you say, okay, well, <laughs> you know, actually I could have probably avoided these mistakes with these following lessons. What, what would you say those are? That's a good question. Um, so the pan media experience, like, you know, we, we were three guys, we, we had sort of fairly different ideas about what we wanted to do. I really wanted to make a product company and, and the others, I don't know if they really did, or we didn't really have a clear, we just didn't talk about it clearly. Like we're good friends. It wasn't like we couldn't talk. We just said, I don't know that we didn't ask the right questions. We didn't challenge each other, I guess, or ourselves uh, with, with, with sort of, you know, what, what I later came to recognize as, as, you know, the wonderful brutal honesty <laughs> that, that we, you know, developed at unity. Um, so yeah, just, you know, it was just, and then we ended up doing this project work and it was fine. And I got really fed up with it. Um, uh, because yes, you can learn a bunch from project work. Obviously, like you're working on complicated projects in some bigger companies that presumably have some knowledge that you can get. But, but yeah, it wasn't very interesting. And that, but by the time we sort of had a hiatus, hiatus in project work and we talked about doing actual, you know, products, um, you know, we, there was no alignment. So, you know, the thing was very much destined to fall apart. With 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 iCover, the um, it was just you know some Danish musicians who had the idea and you know I joined them as this kid and I was trying to help them and the thing is it's sort of a different era like you know now the idea of making a minimum viable product and there's a whole sort of methodology in building companies and startups now that that is not perfect, but it's, you know, very well defined and, and you can really kind of lean on it to some level or at least use it as a, as a sort of a, what do you call it? Like a, like a, a filter or like a, like a lens to understand what you're doing. And, and this just didn't exist, at least not in Europe. I mean, mm. I'm sure there were people that understood this in, in the Valley. And of course, you know, some people just learned it on their own everywhere because there's companies from everywhere, everywhere in the world, but, but man, did this not exist. Um, so no, it was just confusion, just like youthful confusion, <laughs> trying to do some stuff that I, I could, I could, I could see the ideas were interesting, uh, like, but yeah, no, there was no, there was no clarity. 
All right. Well, if, if confusion was like something that I think you moved away from into a new organization like Unity, what was that early confusion like? Because I mean, it's always messy at the very beginning. How did, yeah, how yeah. did you define the problem? How did you guys define the problem? Like who were you solving the problem for with Unity in that very first few uh, years of, of, of the beginnings of the company? Sure. I mean, first we just wanted to make video games. You know, we you know we we had sort of passions for that in different ways. You know, we had all played games since we were kids. Um, again, we came at it with fairly different ideas or ideologies, but but you know there was a lot of fascination with the medium. Um, some of the early conversations were like, so you know, why don't we love video games so much? <laughs> well, you know, because video games seem to you know, not really relate to the real world, and we'd like to kind of relate to the real world and, you know, tell stories of the real world or change the world through stories. And then, um, you know, we, we had all kinds of ideas about how to do that. Um, and then, you know, we realized we had absolutely no knowledge of how to make games and no resources. So we ended up making a very small game that was just like a toy game uh, called Google that also sold only a few thousand copies. But, 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 um, but at least we were always developing. Like we're always thinking very, you know, we're challenging each other. It was just a really, I think those guys are amazing, right? Nicholas and Joachim. Joachim is still CTO. Nicholas left some years earlier. Um, and they're just, they're just fierce and smart and, and like brutally honest. And I just love these moments. So there's a lot of kind of just stumbling around in the ideas and, um, and so on. And in, in a way, the game part of the story is not so interesting. We, we, we built an engine for ourselves because, you know, Unity didn't exist. And there was nothing kind of readily, readily available that was also good. There were some open source projects, but they were atrocious. And then there were some really expensive commercial stuff um, that also was kind of complicated to use. Um, so we were developing our own engine, just as everyone did back then. Like there was literally thousands of game engines, probably tens of thousands, honestly, if you count sort of everything with um internal engines so we did that um and for various reasons like my co-founders had unbelievable design sensibilities maybe especially nicholas who came from a very sort of broad range of making film and a bit of music i guess and, and 3d and so on um and uh, we were a mac shop which is like the only the only 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 company in the game industry that used Macs, i guess pretty much so Maybe there was a design kind of intuition that came from that as well. Um, so after working on it for a while, we sort of looked at it and we saw that it was actually kind of polished and interesting and well done. Um, and there was a focus on workflows, which the rest of the game industry barely had. Um, or at least if, if they were thinking about workflows, it was workflows for big teams and not small teams as we were. Um, so at some point we looked at it and we were like, we're like this is something. <laughs> This is different. Um, and, you know, the rest of the industry had, for various good reasons, been focused on bigger and bigger project, uh, pro projects. Um, you know, even, you know, ma mobile gaming didn't really exist yet or was super bad. Uh, PC gaming was in trouble. Where, where all the money was being made at the time was Xbox and the PlayStation and, and the GameCube, I guess. Um, you know, so console games. Um, so the, the, the most of the games industry was running there, um, and we just had these kind of intuitions that small teams would matter. You know, indie games wasn't really a concept yet, I think, or I'm not sure when that 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 is when that term is invented. It may have existed, but it wasn't like well established. 
but this feeling of like smaller teams making games that would matter to the world there was a lot of like kind of authorism going on or a bit of authorism and and, and so our intentions were like towards that group um small teams you know not going through traditional channels um and and yeah, there was a feeling that Unity might might fit this group, and we decided to commercialize Unity, sort of initially for that group. Um, but so if we talk a little bit about that group, because that's your mm -hmm. early customer set, right? And so you, you talked a little bit just, about just 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 people like us, basically. <laughs> Except you know they were better at making games than we. So if if you look at if you look at that small group, and you say mm -hmm. that that was your early customer group that that evangelized the product for other new people, and therefore became mm -hmm. the biggest voices for you. Was there, you know, you, you gave me several things. You said that you, the product was built around workflows. It was more useful for small teams and it was a nice looking, well-designed product. Was there, other than those elements, which are, you know, they're like, they add up, right? But was there some magic element that defined the product and that made it like, okay, this is substantially different as a runtime environment. It will make, it'll make it so much more powerful in ways that nobody else could do. Yeah, or was it just that there was a lack of alternatives for small teams with nice workflows? Like, wh which one of what was it? Was it like this magic element, or was it more just like there just wasn't anything addressing that customer? So customers were like, "Oh, this is the only thing we got." Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> that was probably a lot of it, and 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 you know, just uh, you know, the it's like the whole experience of the product was designed from that idea. So how, how, how would that describe itself? Um, so we decided we would, there was a category, which still exists, I guess, but it was clear back then called professional software. Um, you know, Final Cut Pro, uh, Macromedia Director, Photoshop, I guess, um, you know, where, you know, the, the, it's just like, it's, 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 you know, it's, there's an obsession, obsession with the user in front of the computer and, yeah. and, you know, and maybe, you know, at most a few people that he or she is working with. Um, and the business model is built on the individual user. So you are a Unity user or you're a Photoshop user. Um, you know, and, and you don't necessarily have to kind of mm, kind of yeah, you don't have to call somebody and negotiate a price on a per per game basis, something, something, but you you know, you just start using using the software. There's a free trial. Later there was a freemium, of course, but we didn't actually come up with that initially. Um and 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 then like the whole just design sensibility sort of de developed from there. Like we, you know the website even tried to copy sort of the professional software section of the Apple website. Uh, Final Cut Pro was probably the biggest sort of visual um, inspiration for for and, and workflow inspiration for for the Unity editor. Um, and I think people just recognized that, that this was different. Like game engines at the time were like source code you would download and then like something would happen and. There might be sort of, yeah, there might be sort of various editing tools, but it wasn't unified. Um, another way to put it is that, you know, all the game game engines up until Unity were basically written from the ed from the engine out. So you start with something that renders pixels and, and and calculates audio and and physics and so on, and then you add sort of tools around that. And Unity was different. Like we, we actually it was like almost editor in. You start with the workflow and the tool, and then you know, the engine is sort of written inside of that later. Uh, that meant, of course, that, you know, our editor was really good and the engine was kind of atrocious yeah. um, because the editor defined the, the engine uh, or like 
dictated the engine. Um, but it was kind of what was needed for that group of people and for that era. And then, you know, we were unbelievably lucky that the, sort of the indie revolution was about to happen. And then, you know, the smartphone <laughs> revolution came also, you know. So, but, but by the way, we, we, we started working on Unity sort of 2002, three, four. We, we launched uh, sort of a early access in 2005. Um, and then, uh, you know, as, as, as you may remember, you know, the App Store opens in 2008. So by the time we've been in the market for a couple of years, and just been struggling to put it together and make a few customers happy and so on, it actually started happening. Yeah. Like, like, actually, like suddenly, like the, the group of people that might use this were, were, was growing very fast, yeah. It's, it's actually interesting the way you described it a little earlier. Like the, it was really an editor with like an engine that you maybe not were as happy about, but that the mm -hmm. editor element made it such that people preferred yeah this versus the other way of designing things. It's almost like you're willing to tolerate the engine, the yeah. faults of the engine because the editor was so great. And and I know that Unity today isn't serving just um, No, no, I mean, like, like later, of course, the engine got rewritten, it's being rewritten again, like it's it's actually really good now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the, the, but there was a, like, there is a sort of a, yeah, you have to pick your battles and, and the battle there, you know, it wasn't super strategic, but maybe, maybe intuitively correct. That you know we would just want to cuddle the user and make sure the users were feeling really good. Yeah, and and so I think the the interesting, the fascinating thing is that you've now managed to capture automotive, transportation, manufacturing, film, <laughs> cinematics, architecture, engineering, construction. We're, as we're working on it. <laughs> like these are customer segments that are not your original one, and no. and but they're similar. I, like they're like it's, yeah. it's professional sitting in front of computers, right? I know that's that's almost too generic to say, but. But but actually, Unity is almost a better fit. I mean, now we're really good for the game industry. We've done it wonderfully well, and I'm really proud of the customer wins we're getting now, uh, and it's great. Um, and, and by the way, we didn't win from mo another competitor. We just won from like people writing their own engines. Mm -hmm. um, so now very few people are writing their own engines, except at the very high end, where a few of the really big studios have their own engines, and the, everyone else is, is using, well, mostly Unity or a couple of competitors. Um, um, when you come to the other industries, actually, you know, they don't have necessarily the capacity to write their own engines. They don't have the history of that, the, you know, the, the, the sort of experience of that. So actually, Unity is an even better fit there, um, where, you know, we have a whole bunch of people how, with workstations with professional software. But was that a proactive thing that you did, or is it, or is it just happened? Did, did you guys say, I'm going to go, you know, we, we, we have enough game developers, mm -hmm. but you know, game developers aren't always rich and they can't always pay their bills. And, and you know what, sure. construction, that's always reliable. Let's yeah, go yeah. after that. Yeah, actually it was even earlier. Like we had this intuition that, and like a bizarrely good intuition, by the way, that, that, you know, we would see a future where, um, where game engines would get used for a lot of different things. Um, you know, in the the first business plan we wrote is actually lost to history. But the second one from 2005, which was more like a sort of a plan of action, um, you know, actually describes touching a lot of other other industries. Um, uh, and and the first few years, we actually had almost more success outside of the game industry than inside. Um, then we sort of crossed some kind of a threshold, and and we got good enough for the game industry. And the iPhone or smartphone revolution happened, so we had this huge kind of a burst of success or like decade of success inside games um where games outpaced everything else but but you know the the other 
industries using Unity never went away, and 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 we recently started sort of redeveloping that or deepening those relationships again. Um, of course, there's a whole bunch of stuff we hadn't learned that we needed to learn, and now we're learning about how to engage with them and and so on. But yeah, but but it was sort of always always involved in, in the in the idea or included. Um, you know, maybe much let's, later. Let's, yeah, let's, yeah, sorry. Let's let's rewind on that because I'm I'm really mm -hmm. targeting customer onboarding really for mm -hmm. any new platform customer onboarding is such a challenging thing yeah. and if i look and if i look back at those early days not only in the studios and we can talk about games but we also can talk about any of the other customers how did you get those early developers onto the platform how did you get the first few to believe in the was it just organic was it through like the, the open source community how, how did how did they come to you and how did you manage them organic. I mean, so so <laughs> I, I, I mentioned that we started on a Mac, yeah, and there was like no game industry on the Mac, and game game companies didn't have Macs. So initially, the editor, the, the creation tool, was only available on on a Mac. Um, so basically, it was just a tiny, tiny community of game developers who had Apple computers, and mm -hmm. uh, and you uh, know the set was so small. Like you know, when we put out the new even a point point release. You know, MacWorld would write about it just because mm -hmm. there's nothing else to write about in this category. And then, you know, the few people that might actually be interested in this actually would then try and that down, down, download it. Um, so, you know, it was something about, you know, capturing. I think it's later I learned the concept of the blue puddle. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and it's not a blue ocean because those don't really exist. But, but like something small that like nobody cares about, um, and where the you know the users in there care so much that they are willing to kind of you know, discover even even kind of niche or new solutions um yeah and then like i mentioned like that that just category ends up growing in multiple directions yeah so if i move fast. away from the developer and i move into mm -hmm. the first intellectual property owners so like you know there's a difference between somebody who's building who's using a view as a as a tool versus somebody mm -hmm. who's investing their intellectual property whether it be marvel or like i'm, I'm picking ones that I, I don't know if they were early customers, but if you think about some of the big studios, if you, there's there's always that one first one that took a leap of faith. How did yeah, you get yeah. them to trust your brand? Like, how did that happen? One of the really early ones was uh, Cartoon Network. They were they had, <laughs> you know, it's almost I, I can tell you a story, but it's going to be like seven minutes and it's really convoluted, yeah. and, and 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 at the end we don't really learn much. So <laughs> in this case, it was like. Uh, the story was that Cartoon Network had hired a developer in Korea to build an MMO for them for kids with their with their IP, and it was kind of really cool, but also kind of a company that wasn't doing a good job putting it together. So they had a tech director in the US who was kind of leading the project from Cartoon Network's side, and he was actually using Unity to prototype his ideas and show it to the developer in Korea that had their own kind of proprietary engine, whatever. Um, and and at some point he was so frustrated because he was able to make it feel right, uh, like you know, just like fighting mechanics, jumping mechanics, like the things that somehow the the developer wasn't getting right. He was get, getting right. By the way, Rob Rob Knopf, like he you know he used to work for um, um, ah, one of the really old uh, Ultima Ultima. He did Ultima Online, right? So he's like he's an early wow. MMO developer, like 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 a guy who knows what he's doing, right? Yeah. He was just using Unity as a prototyping tool. He was sending little builds to the, the developer to kind of do it like this. And at some point, he just glimpsed it. Like, he's like, wait a minute. I've, I've, I've prototyped all the little actions. <laughs> if, 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 if we just put it together, it might feel great. 
Um, so, he, you know, so he actually contacted us about that. It was pretty brave of them, you know, they, but I think they're also, I don't know if they were desperate, but they were definitely worried about the situation as it was. Yeah. Um, so some kind of, yeah, <laughs> like super like, like random, but also not, I don't know, not random. I mean, this is like, this is a very serious person who, you know, uses unity for real reasons, just the wrong reasons. Um, and then like, you know, the ultimate, the uh, organic adoption. I guess um, yeah. It, it's not like we made a whole bunch of money from this game, but we learned a lot, and and you know, just it was a cool, cool showcase for a while. Well, there's always a first, right? But you know, if yep. you look at most businesses, there's always like the one or two or three clients that made them. You know, where you're like, okay, I just stepped up into the big leagues. Which were the critical mm -hmm. partnerships that you needed to close? That you were like, okay, we're not playing big, big <laughs> leagues, and how did you get them? Like it was all these kind of you know sideways adoptions, right? So like Electronic Arts, you know, they were not going to use Unity for the longest time. They they do now in, in multiple ways, but but you know initially there was like a character builder for for one of their sports properties because they wanted oh, we had a browser plugin at the time. Now now we run through WebGL, which is great, but but back then we had a browser plugin and we were like maybe maybe the only ones in the industry that had like a decent looking three D browser plugin. That that actually worked. I mean, there was a few, but but ours ours actually worked mostly, <laughs> more often than not, anyway. And and so so like somebody at EA started using Unity for that, and then we got sort of sideways adopted into a Tiger Woods game and and some other stuff. Um, the funny thing is, by the by the time there was an, an announcement and a big you know customer partnerships, I can't remember. There was some kind of press release years ago, yeah. By the time that actually happened, and and you know we earned like the first million dollars or whatever of sales to them. You know, it was this. <laughs> it was so old news that you know there was nobody who had to kind of nobody wanted to pop champagne anymore because we had worked with them for years and you know we didn't get what we wanted out of the deal and you know it was just normal negotiation. It was fair enough, but you know, <laughs> uh, I think I think it's pretty common that you know by the time you have this massive win, it's already kind of ugh, you know you're tired of it and, and you're working on the next thing. Um, but no. Like the relationship with EA was great, and, and they're still a great, you know, a customer we're proud of, of course. Um, then, um, I mean, the I think the the big moment for us was actually apart from well, there's a few big moments. I mean, launching Unity was just a big deal because it's really hard to launch a product with like you know three founders and a couple of helpers and a student worker or something. Yeah, um, with documentation and website and and the whole rigmarole. Um, then. Um, 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 you know, just making it survive for the first couple of years, put, putting out the version 2.0 with like significant updates was extremely hard. Uh, and then, you know, the iPhone, the launch of the iPhone and the launch of the App Store in 2008 was a big deal because we rushed to that one. Mm. Um, I'm very proud of that, by the way. We were like, again, we didn't know how big it would be at all, but, but we had good intuition and we had a Mac background. So we sort of trusted Steve Jobs when he said that this would be a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, he was right, so we were right. Um, <laughs> it's all good, but so we broke good. For, for instance, like it, it, it's a pretty cool example. So, so we broke with good software engineering practices because the right way would have been to kind of have the iPhone version built into the normal version. So, like you know, you can just target from the same tool, and that's how it works now. But but we just realized, you know, we didn't have time for that, or we didn't dare to have time for, we didn't dare to give ourselves time for that. So we hired uh, Rinaldas Zioma and, and Mantas Puida from uh, 
from Vilnius, and they uh, just kind of we gave, just gave them the source code, and they just went and made a version of Unity that did that. Uh, it was separate and remained separate for two years, <laughs> so like like a slightly different Unity, <laughs> which nice. which is really bad, but yeah. you know it was fast and it worked um, and and allowed us to kind of have a very very tight uh, you know bug feature iteration, right? Um, so yeah. It sounds like some of this, these decisions, I mean, the way that you, you share the story, it, mm -hmm. it sounds a little bit like some of these were evolutions or there were not, oh, yeah. like, not accidents specifically, but like there were just kind of things that came. How much of how much in the back end was there somebody managing these customers? Like how much of the organization was towards customer success versus Everything. Like, like for years, there was nobody who was not just like talking to customers uh, and we're still a porous organization. I mean, it's not everyone because it's not feasible, but um, but no, it was just kind of everyone. Like, you know, I mean, I mean, I still, at conference, I still meet people who remember chatting with me, you know, in the middle of the night in whatever time zone, <laughs> uh, probably in the middle of the night, my time was also, um, you know, sort of back in, you know, during these few, few years, like five, 2005, six, seven, eight, even later, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like it was just anyone and everyone, <laughs> including me, you know, as sort of CEO and, and whoever yeah. else. So being available, yeah. a huge thing. Yeah, just super available. And, you know, it's not perfect. And again, like, you know, there is some noise and there's some confusion. And you end up running after kind of noisy use cases rather than necessarily the, the visionary ones. Um, yeah. But I think we mixed that with with also kind of our own our own fee theories. And, uh, you know, uh, Joachim Ante, our, our Co-founder CTO is still there and amazing. Like he's not the guy who gets pushed around easily. So like you know, I think it was a good, good, good integration of of kind of what we heard and and what we thought was right. But uh, but no, we heard we heard a lot. I mean, we basically heard everything at the time. So if you look back now, you know, over the years that Unity's been been going, and you had to highlight the top three pieces of advice that you'd give to somebody on the product management side of things. You know, you, you talked a little bit about constant contact with the customer. You talked about iterations. You talked about breaking mm -hmm. some of the rules like and, and forking mm -hmm. the product so that you can deal with different platforms in a more quick way. What, what mm -hmm. would you summarize to be the, the three top lessons that you'd give to somebody starting a new company like Unity where there's a heavy product investment? Yeah, it's, it's so it's always going to be different, right? I mean, we had the luck, I guess, that it's not just luck, but you know, the path dependence. That, that we knew, I mean, we, we just had a very, very strong intuition for our users. Like, you know, we, we had tried to make games like that. Uh, we did make a game like that, like, like with a small team at the time. Um, yeah, we just, you know, and, and, and we're lucky in that, like, even now, you know, people who create Unity are very similar to people who, and, you know, the variations and so on. But so, like, there's just a lot of kind of intuition that is given for free, right? Um, so yeah, you mix that with um, um, yeah, just this attentiveness, listening in, being in touch with them. It you know it, it makes it easier. I mean, you know, I, I respect people who go and build products for like people that are very different from themselves because it's harder mm. <laughs> and requires like more, a more disciplined process. I mean, like we didn't have product management for years and years. We do now, and that's necessary because you know without product management, you can easily miss things okay let's go back so intuition is an amazing tool intuition is the most freaking fantastic thing you know about humans um 
point and it lets us navigate really complex kind of decision spaces very fast and with sort of an mm -hmm. elegance you know because you know when you when you're making anything you're not making like one or two decisions you're making like 20 decisions per day right um and and you know those compounds you know over over a few years you will have made you know thousands and thousands of decisions um and if you're not um and that's great and if you don't have intuition you're just going to be too slow and like you'll be in an like you'll be you'll do you'll be doing analysis paralysis you know which is awful um yeah. and then um 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 what product management can yeah yeah what, what product management then can do is like capture the stuff that is not intuitive intuition is this wonderful tool but it has this fates of flaw which is that it's you know it, it just misses what it misses you know because you're not methodical you're not capturing everything so stuff that is not like in your heart will get skipped or or, or missed mm. easily um and so you know we missed some really critical things for years like you know, at some point we 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 knew that half the people using Unity or more were using Unity for two D games, but Unity was really bad for two D. Mm. <laughs> uh, and and multiple times we're like, ah, we should really focus on this two D use case, and you know, and then ah, you know, but two D is not so exciting. It's like easy, quote unquote. Three <laughs> D is hard. Um, so you know, we we missed that use case, or we knew, but you know, nobody was intuitively following it. And even yeah. as a CEO, I would kind of task people with it, like, ah, you know, can you do that or fix that? <laughs> and yeah. then like nothing, not out of many malice, not even out of stupidity, just because, you know, we had this intuitive process and everyone was kind of working on what they felt was right. And mostly that was amazing. Um, so it, was, it wasn't until we found like somebody who just really cared about 2D, we hired him. And then like people could sort of coagulate around him. And then, you know, a 2D mode emerged that was great and it's, you know, really important in unity um yeah. and a big big part of the product but but it didn't happen until we found somebody that had the intuition for it because yeah we had no methodical process to force it otherwise yeah so, so it sounds like product management is what fills in the gaps post intuition like you, you need the intuition but product management manages that now one of the things that you also commented on that was really cool um you you, you name checked some of the people that you hired uh to help drive this innovation and one of the key things that companies ha have is, is how do you organize yourself, especially when you hire amazing talent, how do you build an organization to prevent, like I'm gonna use the term, like how do you prevent the diva from forming or how do you prevent factions from forming within the organization where one group has a re one religion, another group has another religion. How did you yeah. build, how did you build the organization or did you make mistakes and then try to retroactively fit it and have to fire people? Sure. How, how did you think about organizing something to take the best talent and not have it fork? You know, that's a really good question. Uh, the answer is we just largely didn't and largely just trusted people. Um, um, uh, there is a, you know, I think, I think all organizations are built like in the image of their founders and we were just three super low key kind of guys. Very mm -hmm. different, like I'm very social, my co-founders maybe less so. So like it's not like we were all just the same, but we were all these kind of very low key people that had no wish to kind of boss anyone around or lead or or you know manage for sure. Um, so I think it was just a lot of kind of letting people do their own thing uh, and having a lot of trust in people. Um, maybe the only management book we wrote for the first many years was uh, was Maverick by Ricardo Semler, uh, mm. <laughs> which is which you know it's it's a 
like he's built this unbelievable company based on sort of radical the radical um like worker democracy like real freedom um and you know i don't think we went there we sort of had the intuition that you need a little bit you need something slightly more centralized for a startup yeah like his his is an like a large sort of engineering conglomerate as far as i know i've never studied it very well beyond that initial book i think mm. but but um but we had this feeling that like you know you can trust these people like you know these are grown ups like let's 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 just let them do their thing you know yeah and, and treat and treat them like that and and yeah um so yeah like i i think and i hope that that became the culture and just yeah not letting not getting too much in the way of people letting them do kind of what they wanted um um yeah i think I mean of course later like you need some structures and a bit of management and you know HR yeah. and, and and that all came about and, and I think you know these are we sort of underdeveloped some of these functions probably to our detriment initially yeah. and now 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 also that is very well run at unity it's a fairly fairly yeah. well run company I I, I I believe but yeah so um, two two final questions then before we mm -hmm. we start wrapping up the sure. first one is if you could look back all throughout the entire history of unity and do one do over you know, one moment when you're like, man, I wish I could do that over. And then we're going to talk about your angel investments. But sure, sure. what's that one do over? Oh, man, um, that's a really good question. Um, one answer is that I wouldn't dare to change a thing because it seems like such a sequence of luck that, you know, it's like no butterfly must flap its wings differently yeah. than it, it actually happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if there was something, it was actually just like we, 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 we were pretty nervous and sort of like not that confident in a lot of areas. And I think we should have just been more confident, honestly, just like second guessing ourselves a bit less. Um, it wasn't terrible, but I think we could have moved with more speed and grace had we trusted our intuitions more. We would have been wrong anyway and intuitions like would have made us blind to certain things. So sure, like other, other mistakes would have been made, but, um, but honestly, like we would probably have just moved faster. Um, mm -hmm which is generally a good thing. Yeah. Um, well, so so yeah. tell us tell us about how that's manifested itself in terms of the the types of founder relationships that you're looking for now. I know that you're still mm -hmm. you're still obviously involved with Unity, but now that you're also yeah. investing in the new wave new generation of founders, what are the attributes you look for? And, yeah. and tell us a little bit about those. So, you know, maybe the thing that I love most about running Unity and I stepped back 5 years ago now, uh, but I'm still on the board. But what was okay after the few first years where it just were just this, this heroic effort of a small band. What I what I ended up really loving was like, you know, working with the teams, advising the teams, and then, you know, sometimes I guess giving teams money, which is, you know, what kind of a leadership in a company does, um, to kind of, you know, further some projects and then probably unfortunately kill some others. And so so when I stopped being CEO, you know, I think I got my fix by angel investing <laughs> in startups. Um, I'd already done that a little bit while I was running Unity, but but uh, but since I've, I've become very active, um, and I just love these kind of little intuitive, brilliant bands. You know, people that, yeah. So it's I mean that's what I look for. Like it's people that are obviously freaking smart and have some weird insight on the world, um, and then just have this kind of insecure confidence or some I don't know. Like it's it's this kind of seeking confidence where you you don't really know what you're doing, but like you you. You, you trust your decisions while you're making them or something um, and move through with grace. Um, and, and uh, you know, this, this, this really 
radical honesty, intellectual honesty we had between us as founders in Unity, where we'd have these infinite conversations about stuff we had no idea about. And we would even like kind of change positions along the way, uh, like literally swap positions uh, yeah. while talking because, you know, which is not something you're seeking by itself, but it shows that you're really listening and, and, and open to, to, to the ideas. Um, so yeah, when I recognize that in teams, you know, that's when I, when I fall in love the most. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, a great attribute to look for and, and hopefully mm -hmm. people can take wisdom from that. Well, with that, David, uh, thanks so much. I mean, I feel like I could, I, there's so much meat there that we could definitely go into. Um, <laughs> another one. I that, I, yeah, no, for sure. We got it definitely on, on some of these other customer segments you have. It's, it's so fascinating mm -hmm. to see how a company can then just blossom into a larger group of, of customers. But thank yeah. you for your time. And um, any, any parting words? Um, well, no, I mean, it's just, uh, no, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I was just, just as you mentioned this user yeah. group, like customer segments. I mean, the, the, the fundamental insight is that, you know, whether people are working in a game company or at the big automotive company, like the developers are actually quite similar. Like they are these creative souls. They are smart, you know, they're seeking, they're trying to build products or solve problems. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that we speak to them you know, got good at speaking to one group actually makes us good at speaking to the other groups because it's really kind of one group. And we see that even like, we see kind of a circular system between these industries, you know, people switching industries, but, you know, bringing their talents and skills along, uh, general talents, but also, well, it's kind of cool when they bring actual specific unity talents, of course. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you for that. And, and with that <laughs> sure. guys, uh, thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for the chat. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.